Hello and welcome to Truth and Consequences third episode everybody. It's me Miranda. One of the fun aspects of having my own podcast is that I get to interview my friends and I'm lucky to have some really good people in my life who do great things for the world. This episode it's my friend Steve Martin. No not that Steve Martin you guys. Steve spent over a decade helping combat child trafficking around the world through a nonprofit called Love 146. So in our conversation, we talked about the importance of educating this generation about the dangers of child exploitation and abuse, about the thoughtful methods Love 146 uses to help survivors heal and feel safe, and the fact that being survivors ourselves helps us understand that healing from trauma is a lifelong process that changes and evolves over time and is unique to each person. Around the time of our interview, Steve announced that the time had come for him to step down from this role as CEO. He then went on to form a startup called Infused Impact. The nonprofit helps reduce poverty in developing countries by identifying local businesses and helping them thrive, thereby boosting area employment and helping infrastructures. So now I have another reason to brag about my friend, his author wife, and his unique family, which you will hear a bit about. And I will put a link to infusedimpact.org in our show notes in case you want to support their fine work. And without further ado, here's my friend, Steve. Welcome to Truth and Consequences, a podcast about trauma and its aftermath, where we talk about the difficult and often surprising challenges that affect us in the wake of trauma and other life-altering events. I'm your host, Miranda Pacchiana. I am a writer and personal coach with a master's in social work and the creator of the website and online platform, The Second Wound. My guest, Steve Martin, is the former CEO of Love 146, a nonprofit organization located in New Haven, Connecticut, that works to end child trafficking and exploitation around the world. Steve joined Love 146 back in 2005 when they had just three staff. He became CEO in 2010 and since that time has pioneered the organization's growth from its grassroots early days into a global charity. Today, they have over 80 global staff and have reached over 55,000 children through prevention, education, and high-quality survivor care. So, hi, Steve. Welcome. Oh, thank you, Miranda. It's good to be with you this morning. Yeah, thank you. Um, So, last night was your goodbye party. Yes, it was. It was a very special, a little awkward, but a very special. Yeah, there Uh, were some fun moments. It was a good time. Well, it's got to be hard to say goodbye after all those years. Yeah, and I I think when you've you've invested so much over years, um, it's not a, a... a straight parting or a clean parting it's more that um the work will continue and i'll i'll get to participate as well in the work as it continues as well so i'm sure i can't imagine you doing anything differently yeah you can't walk away from something like this of course it's such a huge part of your life yeah so adam and i have had the pleasure of knowing you and your family for many of the years that you've been ceo and we saw firsthand how deeply committed you've been to the mission of the organization and how smartly and successfully you carried out your role. And I'm saying that because we had many nights sitting around the mm-hmm. fire pit mm-hmm. um, with having heart to hearts about it. Um, but I think it also took a lot out of you. 
So mm. I'm guessing. Yeah. Um, and I just wanted to congratulate you on your really vitally important accomplishments that you made there and the exciting adventures that are coming for you. Oh, thank you. Um, but talk to us a little bit about the decision to make this change and how you're feeling about it. Well, there's always um, different aspects to, to work like this. We've got those who are in the front lines and the field that are working directly with children or the survivors that we work with. And um, and there's those of us that have been helping build and grow the organization so that work can, can continue. Um, and so I think as I've, I've grown to see my own leadership styles and qualities, one of the things I've learned is I'm a starter. I like okay. to pioneer and I like to start things. Ah. And um, and Love 146, when I joined, um, which was 14 years ago, it was only about a year old. And so I've had the privilege of being able to start lots of new programs and mm. um, and, and really empowering and helping other people start those programs because I'm no expert in the field. Um, so we're bringing in these remarkable people and empowering them to start the programs. And I think as an organization grows, it gets to a point where you need a different type of leadership. You don't want your pioneers constantly starting things because that can get quite frustrating and annoying ah, for the okay. team. So that's that's one of your biggest strengths. And so yeah. it's it's now maybe time to settle in and kind of yeah. plateau I think and work on what you have. I think it's a different type of leadership. You get. Um, I still think it's uh, innovative and in some cases a pioneering type of leadership. But it's. Um, I, I usually it's the equivalent of. You know, somebody goes and pioneers a, a settlement, and then you need a different type of leadership to build the schools and build sure. the police, the, yeah. you know, the, the police offices, and um, and to actually build the infrastructure moving forward. And so, we've been able to recruit a phenomenal individual, Amy Casavina Hall, who um, started in July. So I've had a, about a month oh, and a half fantastic. to be able to trans- transition with her. Okay. And um, she comes from the United Way, Greater New Haven. Uh-huh. Incredible nonprofit experience. Has spent a lot of time working with vulnerable youth and homeless youth and so this is a natural transition for her and she really understands the non-profit world and how to grow an organization from where we are okay. and impact more lives so you're handing over the helm yes wow. yeah and that is a bit strange it's a bit strange to do and because so much of this work is very personal and is um, very connected to my own journey and mm-hmm. my family's journey so mm-hmm. yeah it's been a, a really good and healthy process as well that's great to hear. I, yeah, when you say it's connected to your family journey, I mean, I remember when we first met you guys, when you were renting the house mm-hmm. across the street, yeah. and Jonathan must have been like six. Yes, he would have been, yeah. And Five he or six, was, yeah. I think the day that we met Jamie, you were at work, and we met Jamie and the kids, and he was raising money for Love 146. I forget. Was he? Yes. Oh, that's awesome. I forget how, um, but I'm sure he wasn't just asking for donations. He was probably mowing laundry. Well, that's no, he brilliant. wasn't doing that yet, but collecting, um, yeah, we'll like to keep recycling. It in the family. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's I mean, great. you kept it in the family, but the, the kids at such a young age understood the importance of the mm. mission, even if they didn't know exactly what the mission was. Yeah. And it was great. We've had so many great opportunities to have good conversations as a family, mm-hmm. not just about the issue, but how the kids can be a part of these big global problems and local problems and mm-hmm. um, connecting with others. And um, we got the opportunity to go to the Philippines as a family and wow. spend time over there for a couple of months working with our team there. And, and our kids got to see the um, the issue firsthand. Tell us how old your kid and now. Yeah. Uh, Trishna is 16. Jonathan is 15. Elijah is 14. It how is that happen? a beautiful hot mess right now. <laughs> that sounds about right. It goes <laughs> Really fast for me because yeah. I'm just down the street. But, yeah, yeah. No, it goes fast for all of us, right? I, <laughs> yes. I looked at the boys today. I'm like, how have I got these lads who are bigger than me and eating Elijah's so much? And, tall. 
it's, it's remarkable. So I gave, you know, a brief intro, but can you talk to us a little bit more about the mission and the work of Love 147? Yeah, our focus has been on the abolition of child trafficking and exploitation and nothing less. There's no, there's no half measures when we mm-hmm. come to ending this thing. And I think for any of us that have had children or have raised children or have nieces and nephews and those who understand that exploitation of children is some of the darkest stuff on the planet and abuse of children is some of the darkest stuff on the planet and so you want this thing ended and you want this Mm -hmm. thing stopped Um, so we've been working in in two areas of focus in our survivor care work where we have safe homes Uh, in the philippines we have safe accommodation in the uk Um, and in connecticut in um, the united states we have um, a, a dozen or so social workers in each of those have case um, five or six cases of trafficked children. Oh, that's a nice um, small So we do case management. It's a remarkable number. And one yeah. of the reasons we've been able to keep um, such a small caseload is because uh, while some of that funding comes from state and federal grants, mm-hmm. uh, we started out as a publicly funded charity. I mean, we were raising money from individuals, Smart. from um, private foundations, churches, youth groups. Mm-hmm. So we built up this base, which has allowed us to... Um, expand our program services beyond what the state or federal services would pay for. And that's been a real blessing. I've always been so impressed by the fact that you do direct survivor care. Is that unique? It, it isn't unique, but it is difficult to do when working with children because you have to connect in with the local social services okay. or um, in, our, in Connecticut, DCF, and Philippines, the DSWD. Mm-hmm. And in, in essence, we're providing services for these um, government organizations or agencies. So we have to make sure that we're working within those laws and those regulations. And mm-hmm. in each of the areas we're working in survivor care, there's some great uh, laws and regulations in place to protect children. Um, but the services that we're providing are, um, are quite different. So we, mm-hmm. we never close a case. Um, really? Meaning if somebody comes into our care or into our services, we will continue that we'll continue journeying with them for as long as they need. So even after age eighteen. Yeah. And I think that's Wonderful. one of the things with trauma and you know, you can walk through therapeutic processes as a young mm-hmm. child or a young adult. You just don't know where that journey is gonna take you. Um, it's really and I think sensitive when, and astute. Yeah, and it's it's one of those it's one of those things where we say that the, the healing journey it just it continues. And it it, it, almost, it never ends so the healing true. journey and it, it changes as you get older and um, and you don't know what life events are going to impact you later on that um, you're going to need help and support. So I think one of the biggest things that we can do for um, trauma victims or survivors is create a safe space for them to be able to come and share if they want to and just being present. So our social workers in Connecticut um, and in the UK where we do wraparound services there, mm-hmm. so much of their work is just about being present for the children for the clients and making sure that if they just want to go to the movies we take them to the movies if mm-hmm. they need help with their schoolwork or um they're having some family problems we're there just to be a listening ear in fact i was with one of our social workers last night and she was saying how she gets she got a call in like the middle of the night they have night we have folks apparently i didn't know we had folks who were on call in the middle of the night <laughs> you and, didn't know that wow and it makes I'm, sense yeah, good thing. yeah we have a great team that organize it all yeah and um and she gets a call in the middle of the night that's just somebody just wants to talk about something mm-hmm. that was happening in that moment, something they wanted to process. I mean, and... yeah, if you think about it, of course. I mean, that's how we work, right? We yeah. all have those dark nights of the soul or just those moments where we we need someone to carry us through it. Yes. My friend Susie DeYoung um, 
she she runs a um, a website called Trauma Informed Parent, and we were talking about how sometimes the most healing interventions are just sitting down with a friend over a cup of coffee. Yeah, truth, yeah. And that, it sounds like in a way that's what your social workers are offering yeah. as well as their expertise. Yes, and I don't think that when when you're working with severe trauma and you and we work with some pretty severe cases we work with some of the, the worst cases mm-hmm. um around particularly in our developing nation work in the philippines mm. and um a lot of online sexual exploitation live mm. sex shows those kind of things okay. and, these and kids, young kids and very young right? kids we've had one-year-olds come into our oh, care and heartbreaking. it is it's, it's absolutely devastating um and so there's a level of professional psychological um therapeutic treatment that absolutely has to be yes. of a high quality yes. and high care yes. but that running parallel to safe places and um, mm-hmm. just being available and being present is so so key it sounds like mm. a, a holistic approach yeah it is and i think I mean, for any of us that have journeyed through um abuse and have walked through a, a healing journey of one sort or another you know that it's very unique to you Yes. There's stuff that happens in your own life, and you know, there's you've got your personality, your family, mm-hmm. who you who you are, who you've mm-hmm. been created to be, mm-hmm. um, and so creating a therapeutic program can't just be done in one big chunk. It's, yeah. It has to be individualized, and and so that's one of the challenges when you're doing care for numbers of children is you you want to be able to individualize it to each mm-hmm. child, and that's something we've been able to do. Every child wow. has a unique pathway that's um that's worked out with them uh-huh. for them uh-huh. and listening to their needs and when I mean, we're big believers one of our values is to listen and listening to children as they're journeying through these processes they not only do they help us help them uh-huh. but they also just help us they have so much yeah. to give and share as well so yeah our, our social workers and our therapists and the folks that we have in the field are truly extraordinary so that's Sounds one side of the work. Wow, it's exciting and impressive. And it just sounds to me a much more um, important and valuable approach than, I, than I've heard from, especially agencies like government agencies that just aren't able to, to provide and I think that's the challenge, right? When you don't have the resources, and, um, and we purposely, we have, you know, we don't, our safe home in the Philippines doesn't have masses of children in it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think at the moment we've got nine or ten boys uh-huh. and we've got, maybe 13 to 15 girls mm-hmm. and even at 12 in the in the the safe home that we have it starts to feel it starts to feel a, a little more institutionalized and mm-hmm. that's something we mm-hmm. try very very hard to avoid and then even with the the um the accommodation in the UK it's two or three individuals wow. in, in one accommodation wow. so it comes at high cost yes but the results are staggering. In and if you're going to do it, do it right, right? Yeah. And, and that's where having the rest of the organization, the team that are out fundraising, the mm-hmm. team that are out sharing the message that mm-hmm. are connecting with youth groups and schools and churches mm-hmm. and family foundations and corporate foundations to help us be able to do all of this work is so very key. Well, Love146 has a really interesting origin story, which I'm sure you've probably told about a hundred times, <laughs> but that means you're probably great at it. So, so let's <laughs> hear it. Right. Tell us the origin you, you know, story. We love How sharing to get the story. a unique name. Yeah, we love sharing the story um, because it is directly related to our name. It's directly related to, to who we are. So about 15, 16 years ago, our co-founders went undercover with investigators into a brothel in Southeast Asia. And there they stood behind a glass screen looking at young girls who were being sold for sex. 
Um, they were all wearing these matching red dresses and they were gathered around a television screen gazing almost vacantly at this, these children's cartoons that was on this flickering screen. And they all had numbers pinned on their dresses so that the men behind the glass screens could purchase these girls um, by number. And um, my good friend, Rob Morris, who's the co-founder and president of Love 146, mm -hmm. um, he described these children as just having all signs of life taken out of them, no um, hope in their eyes, all except for one girl, one child, who was staring straight through the glass directly at him. And, and her number was 146. Mm -hmm. um, and so they left that experience obviously deeply, deeply disturbed. Mm -hmm. um, and we decided we would name the organization after her, 146. She represents so many. And, um, and then when we, when we spent time thinking about, well, what is it that would um, bring an end to this atrocity um, on our planet? what force is needed. We went through a lot of journey and soul searching and process and came up really the most ultimate power that we all have is the power of love. Mm -hmm. And so we called the organization Love 146. Um, and so they left that, they left that experience and, and decided they were going to do something about it. And, um, and that's where our work began in Asia and it's since spread uh, across the, across the world. And we don't know what happened to 146. There was a raid, a couple of um, a couple of weeks later, based on the investigations that um, the investigators were doing, mm -hmm. but You're somebody tipped them off, uh, and the girls were not to be found. So, uh, um, so you've always wondered. We've always wondered, yeah. And we get to tell her story, and she represents so many more. And um, so it's always a good it's always a good thing when someone asks, "How do you good. how did you get your name, and, and yeah. what was your origin story?" Yeah. So thank you for asking. Well, and that brings us to my next question, which is, I mean, we do have a lot of survivors listening and if you could just talk it's, it's a hard question but if you could just talk a little bit about you know the direct impact or the ways that you see sexual exploitation of these children um, affecting them and then how you in the organization and its incredible work are able to affect that and help them heal mm. from it so I, I think it's a good question one of the things that I've learned and that I've seen over the years is that it affects everybody differently. There are some mm -hmm. like there are some um, consistent in terms of uh, what we might see over a period of time with the groups of children in terms of anger or, okay. or withdrawal or mm -hmm. um, different um, typical um, results of trauma. But I think when you get down to how individuals respond to trauma, it's so unique to them. And and I, I think, think one of the right. One of the hard things for, for those of us who have survived trauma is sometimes you end up denying the things that don't appear to be trauma results uh, okay. in your own life and your, and your own work because they don't match this chart of this is a trauma ah. result. This is a, and, and so I've been very careful not to kind of box in mm -hmm. this is a, okay. this is a, as a result trauma. That's a great point. Um, and, and the particular thing, any of us who are survivors, you have this, right. And I'll speak for myself. I had a kind of a denial of this ever happened to me, mm -hmm. and um, and so you start denying even the results of trauma. So um, I think for folks who are listening, there's um, it, it's the the ability to be able to um, not box in what should be a typical response to trauma, um, and to be in a that. place of different people have different responses, mm -hmm. and your response is entirely valid, um, mm -hmm. and that validity of your response may need professional help it may just need a, a friend it may need a quiet space or a um, combination of all of those things yeah and 
yeah, it, it does change over our lifetimes. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and I'm, I'm even just thinking about when you're talking about how you continue that survivor care as long as the survivors are looking for it. I mean, we know now that our brains don't fully develop until we're at least 25. I think mine's they still keep, developing. <laughs> they keep upping the age, right? I think, <laughs> I think about 40, I, I hit a new, a new high yeah. for myself. I really felt a difference, actually. Yeah. But, I mean, that just speaks to how much change and evolving there is and yes. whether you're actively working to heal from it or not yes right? yeah so and i think some of the things that we can do um as care providers and as those who wanted to support others is mm -hmm. to listen to what their needs are to create safe spaces for them um our home in the philippines we have this phenomenal phenomenal child psychologist world-renowned child psychologist that um, began working with us shortly around the same time that I began with the Form 46. Mm. Couldn't believe that we were able to employ somebody who, in fact, we didn't even have the money to pay at the time. Well, like, well your mission is so important. Oh. And it's, it doesn't take any work to understand why. Right, right. Yeah. right. And she's phenomenal. We asked her, if you could do anything to help these children, what would it be? And she came up with this idea of designing what she called round homes. These mm -hmm. homes that were entirely circular where there was no place to hide. Uh -huh. There was no sharp edges. There were no corners, no places where a child could harm themselves and and around the home were therapy gardens and a farm um, and it was encapsulated within secure grounds a security fence uh -huh. um, so we said brilliant idea we'll go do that then uh -huh. and we raised the money and, wow um, so you just went and did it yeah and now we did what we didn't know was building a round home isn't easy it doesn't um, sound easy. No, it's um, again the right architects and all that kind of stuff. But the end result is absolutely extraordinary. I, out of all the places I've been in the world, and I've visited a lot of different accommodations and mm -hmm. safe spaces mm -hmm. for individual trauma, this place is like a temple. It is beautiful. Now you you drive up and these big walls and there's electric fences mm -hmm. and razor wire all the uh -huh. way around, mm -hmm. and we have these For armed protections. guards. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, okay. because we're dealing with some we're dealing with some pretty nasty elements of the. Uh, criminal world in some cases and in, in, in other cases it's um, online exploitation but it's a, as soon as you go through those gates you enter into a place of just peace and serenity there's a, a Japanese uh, therapy garden in the middle mm -hmm. all the plants in the places in the place are, are designed for therapeutic value the, the garden wow. the garden I say the farm at the back um, animal husbandry and growing all kinds of fruits and vegetables and all of that is linked into the therapeutic yeah, process. Yeah, well we know these are things that bring us peace and calm in our lives, yeah, right? And, they, and animal therapy. And they allow for people to be able to express who they are, you know, in their own time, in their own in yes. their own space. Different things can trigger safe. different moments for people. And so, yeah, we were so just... has the, has the design been used as a template for other organizations? We shared, yeah, we have. Yeah. We've shared it with others. I don't know if other round homes have been built. Folks are probably oh, sounds really difficult. Yeah, they're probably like, hey, that was a really, <laughs> that was a really uh, crazy, expensive idea. Um, How many are there? We have one home, okay, and we have another home that's for boys in the Philippines. The round okay. homes for girls, and then we have mm -hmm. the white home for boys. Um, we'd love to um, look at growing and, and building, but it's just a it's a big expense. And when we look yeah. at what we're able to facilitate with what we've got it's um it's a good use of resources at the moment yeah so talk to us about one of the components that i was reading about on the website of love 146 vision is to empower growing movement which is crucial and also really ambitious so maybe you could talk to us a little bit about that and tell us you know has public 
it seems to me like public awareness of sex trafficking has really increased, especially mm. recently. But what more needs to be done, and how can our listeners help with that? So maybe you know, when we first started, the words trafficking mm-hmm. and child exploitation, they just were not commonly used. And certainly yeah. we weren't seeing it on the news mm-hmm. and uh, would maybe go to meetings at the UN or other places that were specifically around trafficking and a few folks would turn up. Well, um, and, and back then I think my interpretation was that this was something that was happening in other countries and was sometimes brought here by other countries. And it was, it, it was, I had a very specific concept yeah. in my head that has really grown and evolved as I've learned more over the years. Yeah. And I think that's part of the, the big misconception. Um, it looks different in different places, but mm-hmm. it exists everywhere. It exists everywhere. Um, and wherever um, people are, people get abused, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. And that's part of the, um, kind of peeling back the curtain of the myth and yeah. showing folks that, hey, when we start talking about it, we take the power, the first stage of taking the power out of it. And so I think where we're at now as a um, society in terms of being able to uh, see it referred to more in the news, talk about it more mm-hmm. openly is a really positive step. So that that leads me to another question, which is, is um, a, not just awareness, but also interest in trafficking and um, understanding and helping with it, and being willing to hear about it even, has that been growing in recent years along with things like the Me Too movement and yeah. more openness to talk about these subjects? Yeah, it really has. And I think people are learning more about it. And that's really one of the first steps that everybody can take is just to learn about mm-hmm. the issues um, and learn about the connections to the issues. And so it might not be just the extreme that we're dealing with, but it could be around the um, the the vulnerable families, mm-hmm. homeless youth, um, folks who are um, who have been abused. That um, it might not be trafficking, but mm-hmm. it, it's still abuse and it's still exploitation. And so well, the it's, vulnerabilities exist everywhere, everywhere, and every family needs to be aware of. Them. And I think as we start talking about it, and we're learning more about it, um, there's just there's more services that are being provided, and ultimately we're protecting more children. Yes. And that really is the key. And that's the other part of our work, our prevention work, mm-hmm. going into schools. And we have a curriculum that um, we've designed and have been implemented across the country through our workers and through others that we've trained called Not A Number. And it's going in and it's educating youth of the dangers of exploitation and trafficking. Mm-hmm. Um, and it starts with going through some of the, the basics of what abuse and exploitation can look like. Um, but it's it's putting the vulnerability factors and it's giving them words for those vulnerability factors and examples of those vulnerability factors to help protect them when they find themselves in difficult situations. So okay. I genuinely think that the next generation, the, ch- the children and the youth, mm-hmm. as they're getting educated and they're getting more aware, they're going to take this information um, into their generation. Um, and that's where we can see a, a bigger snowball effect towards uh, the abolition that's of really hopeful. child That makes total sense to me. Um, even just on a more on a more uh, personal and basic level, um, I find like the generation of my kids' age, they're just totally comfortable talking about these things. Yes. Um, I was at dinner the other night with some friends and their college age daughter. Um, I mentioned something about having a website and she said, tell me about your website. And I was, I got a little bit uncomfortable cause I'm like, well, does she want to hear this topic? And she dove right into it. Yeah. She was fascinated. She yeah. wanted to know all about it. She wanted to, um, you know, sign up for alerts and she just was like, yeah, this is really important. We got to talk about this. Yeah. It's so healthy. But I, it's re- 
it's it's so healthy and some of it has come from folks like yourselves and others that are creating that space and having the the bravery and the capacity to be able to share our experiences it's not right for everybody to do so but when it is yeah and Um, not at every stage and yeah and it can be a really releasing and powerful thing for the next generation so that's why i think talking about it sharing about it Mm -hmm. is um is a huge huge step towards preventing it from happening for others I do too, because silence is the biggest weapon that abusers have. And it's the biggest thing that keeps survivors from being able to heal. Yes. Right. It's the shame, the, the fear, which is real, you know, I mean, some of it's legit. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we, we have to find ways to break through that silence. Yeah. And, and I'm running parallel to that would be understanding some of the signs of potential abuse. Yes. The parents and yes. social workers and first responders can mm-hmm. identify so that those who have been abused can get help. Crucial. So what exactly does not a number do? Do they talk to kids in schools? You mentioned educating adults who, who are in the world with children. Is, is that part of it? It's Yeah, the not a number curriculum specifically for youth and school-age okay. children. Okay. Um, we've done, we do training as well for adults um, in different scenarios, um, but we've we've really wanted to focus in on helping um, get this message out to the, this next generation mm-hmm. um, now, and reaching children where they're at. And more often than not, we do get disclosures yeah, as well. Yeah, I each. bet you do. Um, and so that's why it has to be implemented really, really carefully. And so we do carefully a training. And with, early. Yeah, mm-hmm. we do trainings with all of those that would be implementing it because they've got to be able to identify how do you respond when a disclosure happens. Yes. Okay, this is crucial. So now are you familiar with Aaron's Law? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and Aaron's law passed in Connecticut, yep. but I don't know. I asked my kids about whether they received this kind of instruction in school, and they don't remember it. I'm, I'm curious whether it's being implemented. No, and I'm not sure. I mean, sometimes these things take a while to kind of filter through the system, uh, but also the, it's finding the right types of curriculum and processes. Mm-hmm. And what we've learned about the school districts is a law can be put into place around mm-hmm. what should be or could be shared or talked or what kind of programs should be put into place but school districts every school district is its own independent district so it has to go through its own independent process and you come into a state like connecticut Mm -hmm. and where you've got lots of tiny tiny school districts all over the place it's a challenge it's not easy so i'm so glad that you're that you're bringing this yeah one at a time piece by piece yeah okay so Steve, tell us a little bit about your family, and obviously you weren't born in America. People can, can probably guess that from your accent. That's right. I'm not born in um, Alabama either, if someone's wondering. <laughs> not a shock. Um, we know your whole family, and one of the joys for us about knowing you guys is, I mean, we actually brag about you guys sometimes, because oh. you you guys are just really good people, and you, you walk the walk, you know, mm. it, the 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 way that you live and the way that you raise your children, the way you eat. Um, it's something that we admire about you. And I would just love to, to you, for you to talk a little bit about Jamie and the incredible work that she does. And mm. tell us about your family. Well, I mean, you're hitting the nail on the head and the, the incredible part of the family is my wife. Oh. I'm just hanging along <laughs> oh, for the journey. So, so humble. No, it is for real. <laughs> no, for, I, I know real. you mean that. Um, uh, so uh, Jamie and I, we've been married for 20 21 years. We have three three children. Jamie was born in North Carolina. Mm -hmm. Trishna, our eldest, was born in India. Mm -hmm. Jonathan's our biological child Mm -hmm. um, and was born in Texas, which is its own country in its own right, (laughs) according to many people. And then um, Elijah, our 14-year-old, 
was born in Liberia, West Africa. So we've built our family and grown it through part our biological child and, and adoption as well, which has just been a real special, yeah. uh, real special thing to be able to do. Um, but Jamie is really the the, uh, the fuel behind what keeps us all going. She's an extraordinary individual. She's she um, has, I can attest to that. Yeah, she has a uh, her own. Um, Business. She's grown a, a platform speaking specifically into homeschooling. Mm-hmm. Uh, we homeschool our, our children. We're mm-hmm. privileged to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it's called simplehomeschool.net. And she's written f- uh, four books or so. Mm-hmm. Um, the last one, which just released in May, which is specifically looking at um, introverted motherhood. And mm-hmm. Jamie's journey as an introverted mom and uh-huh. having kids around her all the time and the power of introverts as well and how there's a kind of a resurgence of uh, i say a resurgence but an understanding a better understanding and an of appreciation mm-hmm. for introverts which is much needed yes i think we really we really value extroversion especially yeah. in children and that's not really fair yes yeah. that's so true yeah. and I, i'll tell you now i've read my wife's book as it was being as it was being written on uh-huh. my word i'm learning an incredible amount about not just my wife but uh-huh. Uh, introvert. So, introverted yeah. mom is the the title of mm-hmm. her book. Yeah, it's um, Jamie Martin. Yeah, Jamie Martin. It's been an extraordinary journey. So, yeah, we've really, you know, when when we think about what we've been privileged to be able to be a part of in growing our family and the space and place that our children have of safety and to journey through their own challenges and Mm -hmm. and their own traumas as well. Uh Um, I mean, they came into your lives with traumas. Yeah. Yeah. And, but what a privilege it is to be, to be in a safe space and to have that that place of safety for, for them. And so we're really grateful. We're grateful for great neighbors like you guys and just the, the, the great place that we live. And, um, and when we look at all of that, we think there's, there's a responsibility as well to be able to share some of what we have mm-hmm. with the rest of the world. So it's been very much a part of our family journey and we couldn't do it without great friends and family support. So we're, we're grateful for you guys. Oh, thanks, Steve. Um, and you guys are vegan. Right? Are, you, right. are you still right. vegan? I'm still vegan. In fact, last night at, <laughs> so uh, at, our leaving, at my uh, leaving do, they had, um, it was all vegan food. Oh yeah. my gosh, that's yeah. so nice. We watched nice. Rob Morris, the president of Love 136. I think he attempted tofu. Uh, which... <laughs> very brave. Yeah, very brave of him. Yeah. <laughs> well, I got to say, for for someone who's vegan, I do run into Jamie at the creamery a fair amount. They've started doing vegan ice cream now. <laughs> no, you're kidding. Yeah, they do not <gasps> dairy ice cream. Her. No, no. Oh, I'm impressed with Ferris Acres. Yeah, I mean, wow. maybe maybe she's backslidden from time to time, but yeah, that was a coconut right. ice cream. Well, or I, I continue to be impressed then. <laughs> um, well, thank you so much, Steve, for oh, coming over and talking with me about this really important stuff to the world and to us personally. So, it means oh, a lot to you. me. You can find out more about Love 146 and how you might help at love146.org. Next episode, I will be speaking with Erica Ziedzek. She's a writer, anthropologist, mom, and survivor of abuse and sexual violence. Erica will speak with me about coming to terms with her past after years of undiagnosed physical and emotional symptoms, the strength she's finding in herself as she does this work, and the drive she feels to speak and write about her journey for the sake of her fellow survivors and herself. If you'd like to peruse more episodes and see pictures and show notes, go to truth, the letter N, consequences.com, and find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, where I post about upcoming episodes, past guests in the news, and issues around the aftermath of trauma.
If you like the podcast and want to support it, you can give me a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, and even easier, tell your friends. If you're interested in my personal coaching services, you can read about them on the coaching page at secondwound.com and contact me through the site. Thank you for listening and for all the support, everybody. And always remember, your truth matters. Original music for the Truth and Consequences podcast is composed and performed by my friend David Boyle.